good to be together today. Turn to 1 Peter. If you're new to the Bible, you can look in the table of contents and uh, you can find the page number for 1 Peter in the Bible that you have in your lap. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13 through verse 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who, is, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written... Sorry, I lost my spot. You shall be holy, for I am holy, verse 17. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways uh, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable seed, things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father, I am a mere human being uh, with no authority beyond your word that you have revealed to us. I ask God then that you help me be faithful as I speak and explain this passage and apply it uh, to our church this morning. And may my authority only be rooted in what you have revealed in this word. God, help us all to understand and hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Eight years ago, there was a study which compared Christian lifestyles with those of non-Christians. Now, the study was not uh, surprising in what it revealed, but it was also not encouraging in what it revealed. I'm not going to read the entire study to you, but I want to summarize and highlight a few points. Christian lifestyles versus non-Christian lifestyles, when surveyed, in areas of general morality, Christians were just as likely as their non-Christian counterpart to uh, have within the last month watched sexually explicit movies, read magazines of the same, used profanity in public, bought a lottery ticket. On interpersonal relationships, Christians were just as likely as non-Christians to have said mean things about someone behind their back, and also to have said something that was not true to others and also to have said that within the last month they got even with someone who hurt them. In areas of sexuality, 
Christians were as likely as the non-Christian counterpart to have, within the last month, looked at pornographic magazines, movies, and websites, and also just as likely to have had intimate sexual encounters with those whom they were not married to within the last month. On areas of substance abuse, Christians were no less likely to abuse substance as similar percentages consumed enough alcohol within the last month to be intoxicated and also used illegal drugs. When it comes to areas of social justice, Christians were no more likely to be involved in issues of justice, such as volunteerism and activism or assisting the poor. And Christians were no more likely than their non-Christian counterparts to recycle. Now, the study concluded with these words. The respect, patience, self-control, and kindness of born-again Christians should astound people. But the lifestyles and relationships of born-again believers are not much different than others. Well, it's not surprising on one hand, and it's not encouraging at the same time. What do we make of this? Some of you might be newer to the church, and you're wondering why a pastor is standing from a pulpit exposing us, showing us, showing you that we're just a bunch of fakes, right? Some might say this is proof. You see, Christians are no different than anybody else, and so therefore, Christianity must not be true, because we look and think and similar lifestyles to anyone else. Well, let's, be, let's not be too quick to jump to that conclusion, as it is also possible that as these are self-professed Christians in this study, it's possible that a lot of people who call themselves Christians in our culture are not actually Christians. It's also possible, isn't it? Someone else might say, well, Joel, don't be too harsh here, all right? The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian is forgiven, and the non-Christian is not forgiven. So, exactly the same lifestyle in every way, the only difference is one is going to heaven, and another one is going to hell. Well, is that what the Bible says? Is the only difference between Christians and non-Christians the fact that we are forgiven and they're not? As a matter of fact, as um, we have been looking at 1 Peter, what we have found is this, is that we are indeed forgiven, right? So the first 12 verses of the first chapter of Peter is all about the wonders of our salvation. It's all about the fact that there is nothing that we have done to earn our salvation, but it's solely the work of God through the Holy Spirit pointing us to Christ, and we see Christ. I mean, all Peter has been doing so far is just showering us in the glories and the wonders of our salvation by grace through faith in Christ. But do we stop there and say, so saved by grace at the end of the story? 
Or do we go on? Well, Peter goes on. I want you to look at the first word in our text this morning in verse 13. He actually says there, whoop, he says, just moving these, he says, therefore, which means that everything that he has said before it, I just felt like these were blocking my view of you guys, everything that he has said in the first 12 verses have built up to what he is now about to say. So after celebrating the wonders of of salvation, he then says, so therefore. So now, only after grace, he then begins to exhort the strangers. So, I present to you the life of the stranger. This is essentially what Peter is doing. So you are strangers, You are God's elect, bought by God, gloriously saved. So now let's talk about what it means to live as a stranger in this world. Now, stranger. The word alone implies that there is something about you that is strange. And some of you are like, that is true. (laughs) Others of you are pointing at someone else saying, that is true. Listen, if we are called strangers, there's something strange about us. What is strange about us? Well, what we're going to see in this text is that we are strange in three ways. We are strange in our hope. We are strange in our holiness. And we are strange in our holy fear. Let's walk through each one of these. Look at verse 13. First, we are strange in our hope. There he says in verse 13 that we are to be preparing our minds. Now, what does that mean to prepare your minds? Does it mean you need to go to seminary or to go to school to learn two plus? Two? What, what does it mean to prepare your minds? Well, he goes on and he tells us how. He says, being sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, on one hand, it's the opposite of being drunk, all right? So, instead of being mind-altered, drunk or high or whatever, he's saying be sober-minded, but there's a broader connotation with this as well, which which means that we are to not be, in our minds, given to excess in anything. Meaning we should not be so focused or so something, we allow something to influence our minds to such a degree that we lose touch with reality and with this world. So first, our hope that we have is not based on escaping this world. The hope that we have is not based on escaping the world through mind-altering substances or activity. Now, the world of the first century, when this was written, was anything but sober-minded. Think of the Roman uh, world in which this, con- this was the context. In the Roman world, uh, prostitution, cult rituals, ancient forms of pornography, Anything but a sober-minded 
world. Everything in the world had to do with tweaking your mind and changing your mind and altering your mind away from the reality of life. Well, probably even more so today, right? I mean, in some ways, you could say that our culture is surpassed or is surpassing ancient Rome, the ancient Roman world in terms of mind-altering hope. I mean, where, where do people find hope today? After a long day, what does hope look like? Well, usually it is, has something to do with a mind-altering substance or activity. So in our world today, we find hope in bottles, paper rolled up. We find hope in, uh, in, in sex, acting out on lust, in pursuing something that is unholy. We find hope in all sorts of things, and we could say that in many ways our culture today is not sober-minded by any means. And that we're always trying to escape this world. Now listen, Christians are to be the most realistic people in the world. So if you're new to this church, one thing I would hope that you find here are realistic people. As you interact with people and as you get to know us, I hope that you, what you would find is that, that we are a people who see the world as it is. That we have two feet on the ground, that we feel the pain that we feel, that we go through life realistically. We are to be a realistic people. Why is it a sin to get wasted? Why does God say, be not drunk with wine? Why is it a sin to say, get high? Well, it's because God wants us to be a realistic people with two feet on the ground, feeling this world, feeling what we feel. You see, when we self-medicate, often what we're doing is, is this, the very feelings of conviction and of sorrow and of even anxiety and depression, we could go on with a list, these very things that could cause us or should thrust us into trusting in the promises of God and leaning into God and finding hope in God, we find them through, we find our hope through bottles, you see. We find our hope through altering the way that we feel so that we don't have to feel that way anymore. And then therefore, we never actually deal with the things that we must deal with. It actually stunts our sanctification. No, God wants us to be in this world. He wants you to feel this world. And so then therefore, we should be the most realistic, sober-minded people. Now, how do we... Oh, let me just say something really quick before I move on, uh, as an example of this. First of all, as a church, I'm encouraged with you generally in this area. Um, we had a Christmas party, and uh, I had a non-Christian friend come to our Christmas party. And, you know, there, there's, there's wine there, and there was... There was uh, some folks drinking a beer. After the party, my friend came to me and he said, you know what? He said, I was, you, you guys had wine out. You know, there was alcohol available. He said, the entire night, not one person got drunk. He said, I have never seen a party like this before. <laughs> Praise God. 
sober-minded. You see, this makes us strange in the world, even attractive to the world, but even according to my, to my friend, he doesn't understand us. The world doesn't get us. So therefore, we are strange. Now, going on, um, how is it that we remain sober-minded? Well, our hope here is not based on mere wishful thinking. So just looking at the verse, he says, then set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we are setting our hope on, on this victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. This victory that is coming to us. Now this might seem strange to some of you. To set your hope on something that's going to happen in the future. As if it's a wish. Mere wishful thinking. So for example, let's say that we are an army of rebels, alright? And we are going into battle together and, and our, our commander comes on horse. Let's say it's Mel Gibson, alright? And he's, his face is painted blue. And he says, sons and daughters of Baltimore, alright? We are standing there with our spears and shields. And he's, he's about to give us our, our marching orders into, into battle. And so Mel, a.k.a. Uh, William Wallace, says the battle is going to be difficult. There is going to be bloodshed. So prepare your minds for battle. Alright? And then uh, one of you yells out, how do we do that? <laughs> and he says, Let's just hope that we win. And then someone else says, that's not helpful. We need more than a wish. Is this the kind of hope that he's talking about here? That we're just going through life and we're like this hopeful, wishful people. Like we just hope. We hope that it's going to all turn out well. That's not the kind of hope that he's talking about here. He's not talking about a hope in terms of a, 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 of a wish. But our hope is a strange hope in that it is, it is, it is built on something solid. We sing this song, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus', Jesus blood and righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Our hope as Christians is based on God's previous activity. So all throughout the Old Testament, when, when you read the Bible, what you see is that Israel, it's constantly being told to be reminded of the mighty works of God. I'm reading the Psalms in my devotions, and that's what I'm seeing over and over and over. Remi praising God for His mighty works, His marvelous deeds. Don't forget what God has done. Don't forget His works. Why? Because our hope for the future is based on the past act of God. Well, this is what he does here in this chapter. Look at verse 19. He says, he goes on and he says, but with the precious blood of Christ. So he's referring back now, historically, to an event that actually took place. With his blood, like the lamb, like a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was made manifest. So he came, literally, in the last times for the sake of you, and through the believers in uh, 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 through through him are believers in God who 
raised him from the dead. So past tense action, resurrection of Christ. And then he says, so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, your future hope in God is based on the past work of God. Let me repeat that. Your future hope in God is based on the past work of God. Which means that God is a promise-making God. Every one of His promises has been kept in the past. Historically, God has interacted with human history. He has done things historically through literal events. And as we see God faithful throughout history, then we know that He is also Faithful to keep us. Faithful to keep the promises that He made to us. God does not lie. He will not prove unfaithful. You see, our hope is not a trivial hope. It's not a pie in the sky after we die kind of hope. But it is a solid hope based on who God is. Edmund Clowney said it this way. He said, we don't improve our skill at hoping and then try to direct that hope toward God. But rather, it moves the other way. Our hope begins with who God is. And it's the very nature of who God is that creates this hope. So we are strange. We are strange in our hope. We come come together every week to be reminded of things that happened in the past. Because we are strange in our hope and we must be reminded of what happened in the past so that we might hope in the future. And we're strange. A a, a man's wife left him for another man. His buddies asked him to come on out. Let's get wasted and get some girls. This is what we do after our wives leave us, I guess, right? He turned them down. He stayed at home and he wrote a letter to his wife. And he was believing this promise. And Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Oh, his hope is not found in just simply escaping his problems. His hope is found in allowing his problems to thrust him into the arms of God. A woman breaks up with a man goes through a painful breakup with the man she thought she was going to marry, and these words bring her hope. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. A busy single mom is, is worried and stressed and, and f- believes that she's missing out on so much life as her friends go out and, and participate in mindless and mind-altering activity. Yet she's encouraged and finds hope in this promise. I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. You see, our hope changes us. Well, this does lead us to our second point. We are strange in our hope. And as a result, we are strange in our holiness. Look at verse 15. It's very clear. 
I'm just going to read two words out of verse 15. Be holy. Be holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, at the simplest definition, we can say that holiness means that we are just different. We are set apart in some way. Does this mean then that we should be, I don't know, disconnected from culture, disconnected from the world, move out into the mountains and create our own little society of holiness? No, we've already seen how we are to be in the world. We are resident aliens. We are to be artists and and moms, and dads, and teachers, and doctors, and lawyers, and students, and dentists. And uh, if I left out your profession, uh, I'm sorry. Neighbors, friends. But we are to be holy. So then what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be, how do we set ourselves apart if we are to be in? Do you see the question here? What does it mean? Well, four different ways that we should be different. Number one, we should be different because we are God's child or as God's child. Look at verse 14. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As obedient children. So notice he doesn't say as obedient slaves or as obedient servants, or as obedient citizens even. But he says, as obedient children. Remember, we are reborn. We have a father with an inheritance, and so now, therefore, as obedient children, be holy. Number two, we should be different because we have changed. We are different than we used to be. Look closely at verse 14. How in verse 14 does he describe our holiness? In what ways are we different? What you'll notice is this. His description of our holiness is not that we are different from the world, which is true, but that's, that's not where he goes. What he actually says is that you are different than the way you used to be. Uh, it says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Which means that part of our holiness demands that we are a changed person. We are not who we once were. We once were this way, controlled by these passions. And we are no longer controlled by these passions. We have changed. If you are a converted believer, you have changed. Tonight, we're having a baptism service at 5 p.m. Information's in the bulletin. At the baptism service, folks will read their testimonies. And essentially, this is all we're talking about there. I've changed. I'm no longer driven by the passions of my former ignorance. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was fatherless, now I have a father. And I'm changed, I'm different. 
Going on, number three, we are different in all of our conduct. Look at verse 15. He says, as, as he who has called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Not just some of your conduct. Not just simply changing a couple words here and there. Changing some outer appearance. Now, this is what we would call legalism. Not just some of your conduct, but be holy in all of your conduct. Be different in all of your conduct, which means that your conversion has affected every minute detail of your life. You used to pay bills just to keep the lights on. Now paying bills is an opportunity to display holiness. You used to take exams just to try to find ways to get good grades and finish school. Now taking exams is an opportunity to display holiness when you don't know the answer and you have it in the book right here. Sexual relations used to, used to be something that you would, that you would uh, just simply enjoy for your own gratification or to gratify someone that you were attracted to. But now sexual gratification or sexual relations rather within your marriage is an opportunity to display holiness. And if you are single, abstaining is now an opportunity to display holiness. Work. You used to cut corners. Work was a way to just get a paycheck. Now work, even when you have the opportunity to cut a corner, now work is an opportunity to display holiness in the minute details of your life. Look, all of your conduct has shifted as a Christian. People are strangers. You are strangers, not just simply because you go to church once a week. But you are strangers because you are obedient to God in all of life. Now, what does that obedience look like? What does that standard look like? Well, this is the fourth piece here of our holiness, and this is the fact that we are different because we have been called to a different standard. You see, we have been called to the standard of, standard of God. He says there in verse 16, he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. What is our standard of holiness? It's God. Where has God revealed this to us? In His Word. He has summed it up for us neatly in the Ten Commandments. He summed it up even greater in the, in, in, in the two commandments of Christ. Love God and love others. You see, our standard for holiness is, is God Himself. You see, what I like to do is find somebody who's less holy than me and make them my standard. So I'm doing pretty well because I'm not as bad as that guy. All right? You come and you talk to me about something that you... Joel, I'm concerned about this aspect of your life. I'm like, who cares, dude? You see the way that guy lives? Go talk to him. Well, this is the way we like to think. We like to figure out who we're better than, all right, how we're doing in comparison with other people. Look, I, as your pastor, am not your standard either. Friends, God is our standard. 
When we want to talk about holiness, we must talk about God. That's where we start. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, we've all failed at every point, haven't we? So God revealing His holiness to us in the law, on one hand, it crushes us and shows us that we need a Savior. And friends, as we have found Christ to be our glorious Savior, then we find that the law is wonderful as it shows us what God requires of us so that we might be obedient to Him. We are strange in our holiness. In our church covenant, we read this, we will seek to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remember that we have been voluntarily buried by baptism, raised again from the symbolic grave, so there's on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We should be attractive in this world. We should live lives where, uh, the, the, the kind of lives um, that are attractive. We should be the kind of people that bosses want to hire. We should be the kind of people that friends long to have. Oh, we should be attractive in this world, but the world will never understand us. They will never understand our ways. I, if you're not a Christian, I promise you, the more you get to know us, the more strange we will seem to you. When you get to know our lifestyles and the, our worldview and the way we think about various things, it'll be, seem strange to you. And as a matter of fact, the more you get to know us at first, some things might seem harsh. Some things might seem like rules or rituals. But I also promise you this. By God's grace, one day, you may be reborn. And when God regenerates you and makes you new, what you will discover is that rules have become desires. A standard has become beautiful and something we long for. You see, the Spirit makes us new, changes us, and gives us new desires, new hopes, new delights. We're strange in our hope. We're strange in our holiness. And this is because... Lastly, we are strange in our holy fear of God. Look at verse 17. And if you call him, call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, those words, time of your exile, can literally be translated as you are living as a stranger in a strange land. As you are living as a stranger in a strange land, and if you call God Father, then conduct yourselves with fear. Does that make sense to anyone? It sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? If you call God Father, fear Him. If you call God Father, fear Him. Does that not sound like an oxymoron to you? 
Now, there's two extremes at this point that people generally fall into. One is they call God Father and they don't fear Him. The other is they are afraid to call Him Father and they fear Him. On the first hand, you've got people who casually refer to God. They call Him Pops or or Dad. And they live a life of sin. And then they say, me and God, we're cool. We get each other. We're good to go. All right? Living a life of debauchery and then praise. Yo, what's up, Dad? Well, this is the, uh, what you could call, big word, antinomian. This is the person who believes in the grace of God, but they don't believe in a call to obedience. This is a person who just simply assumes that they are a child of God. This is a person who assumes that God is their father. And they are just casual with him. Well, on the other hand, you go to another extreme and you find people who, I don't know if I can call God father because I don't know if I'm, I'm looking at my life and I actually see some sin in it and I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. And so I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven and I, I'm never assured of his love and I'm, I'm afraid to stand before God, all right? I don't know what we would call these people. Legalists, I guess. Moralists. Well, what is it? Is God our Father? Do we have this family kind of loving, secure relationship with Him? Or should we fear Him? Well, the Bible says it's both. How do we reconcile that? What does that mean? This is what it means. Calling God Father, all right, if you call Him Father, calling God Father means that you act like His children. Acting like God's child is a display that He is, in fact, your Father. Let me break that down for you. First, he says, if you call God Father. Just simply calling God Father doesn't mean that we have a right to licentiousness. Just simply because we have this general idea and we say, yeah, we're cool, doesn't mean anything. Karen Jobes, she said this, the pagan life that God abhors will be no less abhorred if it is lived by one who professes to be a Christian. Powerful words. You see, our standing with God as Father doesn't flow from us and our decision to call Him Father. It flows the other way. Meaning, if He is indeed our Father, we will know that through displaying the fruitfulness of being His child. Your life is and will be on display. Because God is Father does not make Him any less judge. When we stand before God, we will be judged in regards to our salvation solely based upon the work of Jesus Christ. Not my works of righteousness, which I have done, but according to His mercy He saved me. I will stand before Him, and Christ will be lifted up. 
And I will be judged according to his deeds and his blood shed on the cross. However, my life will also be displayed as evidence that I was his child, that I was bought, that I was changed. You see, we're not counted as righteous because of our actions, but our actions certainly become evidence that we are counted as righteous before God. For if we are freed from sin, how can we desire to continue turning back to it? Three things that don't concern me and three things that do. Number one, what doesn't concern me is when people confess their sins. What does concern me is when people pretend they have no sin. Number two, what doesn't concern me is when a brother or sister is fighting, nagging, ongoing sin, and they are fighting, and they are, there's blood and guts, and they're pushing, and they're still struggling with it, and they're tempted with it. That doesn't concern me. I pray for that individual. I encourage him. What does concern me is when an individual is no longer bothered by their sin or when they take sin lightly. What doesn't concern me is when we have the audacity to call God Father. But what does concern me is when we don't act like His children. You see, strangers, can I call you that? We were once part of the world but we have been ransomed. Let me close with that story of Hosea. Remember Hosea? His wife is a cheat. She's a liar. She's an adulterer. Her adultery and her lies have taken her so far that she is now standing on the auction block, being auctioned off by the pimps. Hosea evidently hears about this. And he gathers together all that he can gather together, all of his wealth, and he takes it to the marketplace. And there she hears above the voices of all the other men the voice of her husband, who is now laying down more of a payment for her than anyone else is willing to pay. And with this great price, her husband purchases her from slavery. He takes her home and he looks, looks at her in the face and he says, from now on, you will be mine and I will be yours. You will live with me for many days and you will not belong to another man. Oh, as we go on here in verse 18, he says, knowing that we have been ransomed. You see, this is our story. We were on the auction block. We were slaves to sin. But we have been ransomed. We have been bought. Have you ever realized the fact that someone else owns you? We have been bought by Christ. And 
what he used to buy us was not silver or gold as it goes on, but it says he used his precious blood, a payment far beyond anything you can imagine. He bought you with his own precious blood. He then ransomed you. This ransom is planned before the creation of the world. God intended to save you in this way. This this ransom is personal. In verse 20 it says, for your sake he died. Meaning he died specifically so that you would be set free. Not so that you might be set free, not so that you might be ransomed from sin, but that so you would be. He purchased you with his own blood. It was that effective. And now he owns you. And he says, you will be mine. And I will be yours. And you will not run to other gods. Friends, our strangeness is all rooted in the fact that we are owned by Christ, that He has purchased us with His blood. So therefore, we have a strange hope, don't we? We have a strange holiness. And we have a strange awe and fearful, beautiful reverence of God. Are you a stranger in this world? Does your life look like this? Are you changed? Are you different? Do you have a hope that is set on Christ, on the firm foundation of who He is? Or are you finding hope in the bottle or a joint or some other escapist activity? Are you growing in holiness? Do you look more and more like a child of God? Your hope this morning is not to pick yourself up by your bootstraps at this point, but it's to look back at the work of God and all that He has done for you and on your behalf and the Holy Spirit wakes you up and changes you and gives you new life. Charles Spurgeon said this, the dead dead fish float down the stream. It is only the live fish that go against it. Life as a stranger in a foreign land. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word that you have given to us this morning through the the writing of the Apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us powerfully today. God, we ask that you increase our hope, increase our faith, that you lead us toward a greater life of holiness so that we might be different and changed and desirous of the things that are yours and hateful of the things that you hate. And may we live in a holy, wonderful, reverent fear of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.